shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakewood, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zavallaro and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, 2017, here we go, and it's time to go Inside EMS. Hopefully everyone had happy holidays, and they're preparing. And you are preparing for an excellent new year. But I couldn't start the new year right unless I was with my good friend and partner, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? I'm wonderful, man. Santa brought me everything I wanted. Uh, I, I uh, made some New Year's resolutions, and I'm, I'm working on carrying them out. And uh, 2017's going to be the year of the new me. That's awesome, man. I mean, because the old you was getting kind of wearing. But, yeah, uh, getting get kind of ragged around the edges, for sure. It's uh, good that Santa brought you everything. That fat bastard doesn't come to my house anymore, I'll tell you that. But uh, Well, I'd say he brought you a lump of coal. Well, let's call it coal, then. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, you know, the holidays went well, and uh, yeah. it was really kind of cool, man. And uh, But I'm excited. You know, this starts our third year, Kelly, and April will hit our 150th show and uh where has the time gone you know it doesn't seem like three years but no, uh, that... 150 shows is a uh, pretty uh pretty good man i'm going to be excited when that comes around but yeah you know we want to start the year off right and you know there's this drug out there that uh, is being used and it's kind of being used for a lot of different things man it's being used for uh, analgesia uh people are using it for excited delirium you know, there was an article mm-hmm. a while back that people used to sedate a cardiac arrest patient that wound up waking up and have a had a uh, return of spontaneous circulation. You know, even this drug is even used for people who are anxious or combative mm-hmm. with severe respiratory distresses. And, you know, yep. it's a fast-acting drug. It causes little or no respiratory or cardiovascular depression. But it seems that there's a big controversy about bringing it into the... EMS world, and that's uh, ketamine, and we're going to talk about ketamine, and uh, I think it's going to be really fun, but before we do that, we do have a guest to bring in here, and he's going to help us start off the new year, and Kelly, I'm going to let you kick him off and bring him in here. You guys, welcome to the show, Scott Phelps. Scott's a longtime uh, paramedic and EMS educator. He is he has been certified as a paramedic uh, since Jesus was a uh, first responder, uh, been faculty for uh, Georgetown uh, University's paramedic program. Currently operates his own uh, EMS educational institution. And Scott's a uh, longtime paramedic, master of public health, uh, man of, of many parts, and a, a true Renaissance man. And he's here to talk to us about ketamine. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I, I, w- I wish I had wrote that down for you, Kelly, before I sent it to you. <laughs> yeah, how about that? I mean, he wrote, he wrote it, <laughs> he read read it, it yeah. read it just like you wrote it, Scott. But you're also a, a lawyer, too, right? I mean, let's throw it in there. You could be our well, legal. I, I didn't, I, I didn't want to you know, say the bad things. I just uh, hit the high points of good stuff. You it, be, it's okay. You can hit everybody's lawyer but your own. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's good to know. You know, so, you know, kicking it off first, and, and I think ketamine's a great thing that, to, you know, so we're starting to think about, we're seeing some of these drugs out there, we're seeing ketamine, and we're seeing Atomidate, and, you know, we're starting to see different types of drugs within our field that are, even fentanyl is still causing some challenges, and Scott, if I ask you, you know, first off, is ketamine a drug that should be used in the EMS career field, in your opinion? I think that's actually the wrong question, Chris. I, I think that within the national EMS scope of practice model, we've got it fairly well laid out that paramedics should be able to do anything that they've been educated in 
certified by an uh, independent third party as competent in, anything they're licensed in by the state, and that they're credentialed in by their agency. So whether it's ketamine or surgical cricothyrotomy or putting in chest tubes, I think so long as the paramedics are trained and validated in it, they should be able to do whatever they it's seen appropriate um, by both the educators, the state regulators, and their physician medical directors. I got to tell you, man, Yo, before, ahead, before I give this to Kelly, yeah. he has been waiting for almost three years for someone to say that I've asked the wrong question. So <laughs> you are starting his oh, 20, no. you are starting his 2017 off on a good note. I've been waiting for three years to Chris to for Chris to acknowledge that he has asked the wrong question. That's a weekly occurrence, but um, you, you'll have to Scott. You'll have to to uh, um, just bear with Chris. He's an old fuddy duddy. Um, he he remembers the good old days when when the addicts, uh, the really hardcore addicts, took horse tranquilizers, and now that the horse tranquilizer is one of our uh, our more promising sedative and analgesic drugs, he's just having a hard time adjusting. <laughs> So, um, you know, oh, uh, we have ketamine, uh, and carry it on our ambulances now, uh, right now it's, uh, it's, uh, restricted to, uh, to, uh, excited delirium patients. We can give it understanding orders for that as is the case in, in, in most, uh, places where you, you put a new drug in the armamentarium, uh, sometimes the restrictions on it are, uh, are greater and, and then they're eased as we gain some comfort level with it. And that's what I hope to, to, uh, find with Acadian, uh, in the future. Um, you know, uh, our, our flight medics love it. Uh, the medics I've talked to, I have not had a chance to give it to someone with uh, excited delirium yet, but it's it's got to be a better option than a, a whopping dose of Versed. Um, uh, but uh, from everything I hear, its its uh, its analgesic properties are are pretty awesome as well. Um, what are you? Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the mechanism of action of ketamine and and how it uh, how it uh, shows so much promise as an analgesic? Well, you know, one of the things, I, I'm an old timer too, so I remember when ketamine was mostly a club drug that people would steal yeah. from veterinary clinics oh, to yeah. go to their K-hole. It's a disassociated yeah. anesthetic, which depends on how much of it you give somebody is, is the impact that it's going to have on them. So um, part of the reason why it's seen as a better drug than a lot of the drugs we have on hand is that it can be used for a variety of different things, like Chris said for uh, excited delirium, for um, sedation, for um, analgesia. Um, and it could be also given intranasally, intramuscularly, or intravenously. Um, while at the same time, it has less uh, impact on respiratory depression and less impact on blood pressure than a lot of the other agents we're using. So yeah. it seems like it's more versatile, it's safer, um, and it does an equal or better job than most of the other uh, drugs it's replacing. Now, just to give you an example of how much ketamine has become part of the um, the standard of care, the U.S. military has already replaced morphine with ketamine and a combination mm -hmm. of ketamine and fentanyl wow. lollipops for field-based care. So, you know, 19-year-old field corpsmen are giving ketamine all over the world to soldiers. So there's no reason why an experienced, qualified paramedic shouldn't be giving it in the field in Louisiana or in, you know, Alaska. So you're saying they're they're using lollipops for uh, administration? 
fentanyl lollipops. So why are, why not just give the drug? I mean, what's the purpose of it? I mean, is that just for uh, slower absorption or that they don't feel comfortable with given the IV doses? It seems a little counterproductive if you're doing all those. And it's if you have a sense of the question, Scott, it, it, you know, they're doing all the other things with IVs and such. Why would they use that route for medication? Do you know? Uh, my guess is that it's like nitrous oxide, which is another great yeah, drug. That you, really, yeah. you can have patients self-administer it, and when they receive an appropriate amount of analgesia, they're not going to be able to keep the lollipop in their mouth, and it falls out. Yeah. Um, same with nitrous oxide. They hold the mask up to their face until they receive uh, an appropriate dose, and then the mask falls down, and then it, you know, it turns itself off because of the way the valve is set up. Interesting. So, you know, and so, the thing about ketamine is this is something that you're going to give uh, one and a half to two, um, you know, one and a half to two milligrams per kilogram. You need to give it over 30 to 60 seconds. This isn't a drug that you push fast. You've got to be able to make sure you get it on board in a good amount of time. Um, and from what I remember, and if you guys uh, know different, please uh, correct me. No one under 17 or 16 years old is supposed to get the drug. Uh, they've got to be, uh, you know, adults. It can be given, but you've got to be, you know, titrated differently as well. So when we think about this drug and in our field and it causing so much, you know, I don't want to use the word controversy, but so much, let's say, heated discussion, Scott. I mean, what is the biggest misconception, do you think, of using ketamine in the field? You know, I don't, the biggest misconception, I think, is that um, paramedics are not capable and competent clinicians. And and that's, it's, it's sort of a double-edged sword in many ways, because we do a lot of risky things, uh, whether um, you use this terminology or not, physician, excuse me, paramedics in the field are making an independent diagnosis, designing a treatment plan, and caring for a patient. Um, but what we don't have is we don't have a really good quality assurance program to ensure that high, you know, low-frequency, high-risk procedures like airway management it, that the paramedic is actually experienced. So the biggest problem in both uh, rural and urban systems is that you're, you're, the paramedics don't have enough exposure to maintain clinical competency, and that's why physician medical directors would not want to give their paramedics ketamine because they don't believe they're going to main, have enough exposure to have to maintain that skill set to give it safely. And that's our fault. It's not the fault of the medical directors. It's not the fault of the ENS directors. It's our fault as clinicians for not insisting that we have regular competency assessments for all these high-risk all this high, all high stuff that we do. One would think that res restrictions on the use of a drug, as you described, would, would be more for uh, – you know, as you stated, a lack of exposure to it and lack of familiarity with the drug. But if they're going to do that, you'd think that they would impose those restrictions on the drugs that have the the uh, greater side effect profile or the or the least safe of the drug. And from what from what I'm gathering about fentanyl, I mean uh, about ketamine, is it may even be a a uh, more appropriate drug uh, with less hemodynamic and respiratory side effects than than our old standbys yeah. that we're perfectly comfortable giving morphine, fentanyl, and hand it out like water sometimes. Yeah. Um, but it is, it, you know, you can snow somebody with it. You can, particularly with morphine, uh, lower their respiratory drive and, and lower their blood pressure. 
but not so with ketamine. You can give ketamine to hypotensive patients. Right. And the uh, thing I about mean, it too, Kelly, is that it's it, it gets on board really fast and it gets off mm-hmm. really fast as well. I mean, you know, we kind of talked about the lollipop thing, but e- even if you give it through IV, it, it's going to get on board really quick and hence the, you know, giving it in the excited delirium, you know, hence giving it in, in, in you know, the people that are having severe, you know, respiratory, mm-hmm. uh, they're combative because of severe respiratory distress. Um, but then as they start to relax, it gets off, it gets off just as quick as it went on too. Well, part of the problem is that you know, morphine has been part of the standard of care for a long time, but mm-hmm. unlike a UK ambulance system or an Australian ambulance system, um, we're not required to have risk registers in US ambulance services. So there is no risk assessment before a new drug is introduced. There's no risk assessment about um, things that we're going to have high degrees of failure on. It's it's all based upon the medical director's feeling about things. And Listen, I think medical directors are doing a great job in, in this country. And you can, you can go ahead and say guesswork and conjecture. We don't mind. <laughs> yeah, but that's but that's part of the problem because yeah. they're basing it on their experiences yeah. rather than necessarily any quantitative assessment. But that's a lot of the drugs we give in EMS are the same way. I mean, give give me one drug that we utilize that we use in EMS that's ever really been you know researched to say it makes a difference with patient care. Oh, uh, see, Chris, that's not true. We've got uh, oodles of them. The question we've is, got oodles is, of. is we often extrapolate, uh, hey, this works great in the emergency department. Giving it earlier may be even better. Um, or why, you know, why can't they give it in the, in the uh, ambulance if they're giving it in the emergency department? And that doesn't necessarily follow. But we, you know, we are pretty sure the efficacy of most of, our, of the drugs we give. Uh, some of them are probably given too often and inappropriately. I'm not one, for example, to use antiarrhythmics much in the field. Uh, I figure if someone needs their rhythm, their rhythm controlled in my ambulance, it's most best done by uh, Edison medicine. But, you know, I, I disagree with Chris in that, in that we, we really don't have uh, data and on the efficacy of the drugs that we carry. Well, the problem is usually getting sufficient size. Um, it's also a question yeah. of the way these studies are designed. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure I, I'd, I'd be willing to bet a big sum of money that Narcan actually works. Um, I'd be willing to, oh. to bet a big pile of money that bronchodilators actually work. Um, that CPAP actually works. But the problem is how you need a really big system to be able to get 5,000, 10,000 patients to show a statistically significant difference right. in between in, to show that these things work. Now, I, I keep on bringing people back to the, uh, the Los Angeles and Orange County pediatric intubation study, which yes. was really oh, yeah. good science, but it was interpreted really badly. Um, when you give paramedics who had never intubated before six hours of training and then set them loose, they're not going to be good at a skill. Yeah, but the problem um, then is that you're looking at a study and people are quoting it as the as the end all beat all yes. study. But but it's the same thing even with these drugs. I mean, when I when I made the comment about the drugs, I'm thinking things like you know lidocaine and cardiac arrest, or back in the days with Bertillium, or you know all the drugs that we're using in in, in you know for cardiac arrest. We have to question where, where's the proof that it's even working. You know, I, I like to go back to the thought of. You know, we're getting kind of off track here. I love the old days of when you used to be able to give D50 in cardiac arrest. I'm a believer that that sugar makes a difference, that, you know, <laughs> it, it should be able to be utilized. Going back to the old days before electricity, 
But, uh, you know, going to the, you know, as we start to get to into heck the... with your data, man, I've seen it with my own eyes. <laughs> That's right. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but when we think about the, the new drugs that are coming in, it, it seems that, uh, you know, it, it the same way, you know, when uh, uh, fentanyl came on the market, you know, we were like, what the heck is this? And then Atomidate started to make the, you know, the scream around EMS and everybody was like, what the heck is this? And now with Kenamin, even though it's been around forever and it seems to have you know, some great, uh, um, I guess, some great responses that, you know, for where it's being used. It, now it's like uh, it's a drug we shouldn't be using in the career field. I, I disagree. I, I can't wait for the days when uh, when our medical director presumably will will uh, loosen our restrictions on, on ketamine and we can start using it as an analgesic in my system. Uh, we do have an out. We can we can administer a, a medically appropriate medication under under direct physician orders. So if I want to to give ketamine as a uh, analgesic, I can call and and go through the mother may I routine. But uh, I think it's I've seen it used. Um, I've used it myself uh, in conjunction with some of our flight medics, and and I love its its uh, um, safety profile and and the effects that it has. You know, I mean. For example, with with uh, um, RSI and, and DSI, um, it's a high pucker factor event when you're about to take someone with an impaired uh, ventilatory drive or an impaired airway and convert it to no airway at all. Uh, and and it, the onus is on you at that point to, to secure an airway. And if you don't have some serious airway chops, you're in trouble. Uh, not so with ketamine. You, you, you not you're, you're, you can snow someone well enough to to take a tube and not have to worry about dropping out their blood pressure, not having to worry about knocking out their respiratory drive. Uh, that time window to get a successful uh, intubation performed and, and be ventilating the patient on your own is much longer because the patient is still breathing on their own. I, th- I think we we need to really expand our use of this this drug. I, it can't happen soon enough for me. But but Kelly, it has to happen hand in hand with um, adequate oversight. You know, ca- Adequate oversight, adequate competency training, peri-arrest oxygenation procedures, mm-hmm. um, you know, having a formal call and response intubation protocol. There's, there's all this stuff that doesn't cost a lot of money and would actually improve our quality of patient care and our success at doing things that we're not doing consistently across the country. Oh, yeah. and, don't get me wrong. I wasn't suggesting we just throw it in the box and say, hey, you know, guys, take this online tutorial on ketamine and, and take a test. Um, we need the oversight. But but as you stated, uh, that's fairly simply done. Uh, the sad thing is that it's not in many areas. It's just because of the lack of investment and the lack of interest in creating a high quality paramedic system. Well, that's you just described most of the country. <laughs> um, uh, there are probably more systems, far more systems that fit that description than than uh, uh, the exact opposite, where where medical directors are really invested in the success of the system, and there's adequate oversight and education and and that sort of thing. Yeah, and one of the things that's interesting too is that you would think that with all the systems that are around. Um, there should be more let's get together and share our data to see how we're treating these patients and what the outcomes are going to be. You know, you talk about, you know, 50,000, 100,000 patient contacts, you know, to make the determination of how this drug is working. We could do that if we, you know, pull together. You know, one of the interesting things about uh, ketamine, which I thought was, uh, this comes from some 2014 research, 
Uh, it doesn't increase intracranial pressure either. So, which is another brings in another use for when we think about tra- uh, ventilating traumatic brain injuries as well. And um, but I mean, like you said, Kelly, I think that there's just so many different things that we could utilize this drug for that uh, it may take a lot of drugs out of our toolbox. You know, Chris, the, I was actually thought the the jury was still out on whether ketamine raised ICP. Um, I think some of the evidence says it doesn't raise it very much, or if it does raise it, it's only transiently. But um, we do have systems that are that are fairly large, like Monarch in New Jersey, that um, are doing a lot of research on ketamine right now. Hopefully, they'll come up with you know a a thorough, well-researched, high high degree of association. Um, that the drug works or doesn't work in the pre-hospital setting. I just, it's it sort of, I think there's a lot of small steps that go towards making us more successful in the things we do and help patients in a very real and uh, specific way. And I, I think ketamine is just one of those, those drugs that seems to be trendy, but also seems to be incredibly useful at the same time. So it's the it's the TXA of the past few years. Yeah, it, or the or the ultrasound, which is the next yeah, thing. That's right. Um, yeah. You know, I, I've been around long enough, like Chris said before, to have gone through uh, you know prenestal and bertilium and isoprel and high dose epi mm-hmm. and bicarb and and it's all sort of gone away. However, a lot of the basic drugs. That we use every day, albuterol, mm-hmm. Narcan, Epi, Sub-Q, Epi-IM now, um, are still there. So, you know, the question of which category ketamine is going to fall into, you know, we can't fortune tell right. the future. But it seems yeah. like it's got a relatively good safety profile. It's relatively versatile. Um, it can be given a lot of different ways. And, and intranasally is actually... Um, one of the sweet spots as we, uh, I'm not saying that this, that ketamine should necessarily be a BLS skill, but I will say that in uh, a setting where BLS has no other real pain management options, um, because we don't use nitrous oxide regularly in this country, um, that might be a medium term use for it. If you can train a 19 year old soldier how to use ketamine, we can train an urban or rural full-time career EMT had to use ketamine. That's a really bold statement, but I have to sit here and agree with you, you know, to think about uh, the the type of drug that this is and, um, you know, where's the harm if you're given it in these, you know, even if you think about the lollipop uh, route of uh, it being used. um, And I'm with you, though. If we could teach a 19-year-old soldier how to do it, our EMTs are are, uh, professionals that certainly could handle that as well. I wonder how many licks it takes to get to the center of a, of uh, a ketamine Kelly, pop. Kelly Grayson, every, <laughs> everybody out there, my partner, Kelly Grayson. But uh, can, that be, can we name the episode? How many licks does it take to get the center of a fentanyl lollipop? Yeah, that's right. We can um, do that. I, the thing that intrigues me probably more than anything else is the, is the smooth muscle relaxant properties and the, and the fact that it, you know, it's uh, uh can be an adjunct to bronchodilators. Chris, you think, yeah. you know, and Scott mentioned that it's almost at that threshold of, of being a, a BLS capable, capable drug, particularly intranasally. Yeah. Think of all the times we've had a profoundly hypoxic patient that was so panicked, uh, so, um, uh, so uh, combative that they weren't capable of being coached through CPAP. 
Right. You know, and, and you not know, only can you calm these people down just a little bit, uh, where they can respond to coaching, um, get them, uh, you know, and, and the ketamine acting as a, as an adjunct to the bronchodilator is smooth muscle relaxing properties. Uh, I could see this being utilized, uh, fairly effectively, um, by BLS personnel. You know, yeah. along with, with their their nebulized medications and CPAP and, and that sort of thing. Um, I wonder how many intubations we could avoid with this drug, given, the, you know, of course, given the properly powered study and, and, and looking at its, at its potential there and, and investigating that use of it in particular. You know, one of the things that I always find interesting is if, if you go back to ambulance attendants in the 1940s, Mm-hmm. I've got two specific examples of Chris them actually those days well. <laughs> a little before my time, but there was two, two, two different episodes in Brooklyn, New York, where ambulance attendants carried and gave morphine to patients in motor vehicle accidents in the 1940s. So before we, we, we start off saying that it would be inappropriate for EMTs to do this, um, if you look at the change in the skill set of EMTs over the past 20 years, if you look at what we have other people, you know, in the 40s and, and 50s and 60s, there was a wide variety of skills being performed in a whole bunch of really specific settings. Um, you know, having the ability for EMTs with online medical control to give a hypnotic dose of ketamine so that patients could tolerate CPAP better is not the world's worst idea. Yeah. Um, you just need to have appropriate controls and training and oversight and quality assurance to make sure that it's done right. Right. And I think that one of the things that we need to think about is we're talking about the future of EMS today and that EMS 3.0 or the, you know, the transition to community paramedicine. And I think now as we start to see these new drugs on the, you know, that are not new drugs. I mean, ketamine has been around for years, but new to the EMS career field, we need to start thinking about a change in, in management, in treatment you know, uh, who's giving the treatment. And, and I think that the, you know, the future is today, but, uh, you know, for the, for the purposes of time, you know, Scott, it's been a great uh, discussion and, uh, yeah, I think you've given us a lot to think about and, uh, you got to promise us that you'll come and visit us regularly in 2017 and next time, uh, maybe let Kelly know that he made the wrong question. <laughs> no problem. As soon as Kelly gets a question wrong, I'll let him know. As soon as he gets one wrong, <laughs> I can see where uh, I can see where that money's thank, coming from. Whose wallet that's you, coming out? You read that just the way I wrote it. I appreciate it. He promised me a bucket full of mud bugs. <laughs> that's right. Well, yeah, some some nice spicy crawfish, corn and potatoes, a little beer to wash it down. That's uh, that's bribe. That's great bribe money anywhere you go. And well, we have to have some Cajun music to go with that too. Oh yeah. Well, well, come on down, man. Uh, crawfish season is going to be open in a, in a month or so, and uh, you'll be down in time for Mardi Gras. So. As it turns out, I'll be going to NAEMSP, so I might be down there. There you go. So, Scott, if folks want to get in touch with you or if there's anything that you have going on that you want to share with our listeners, uh, what do you give them? Well, the easiest way to find me is on Twitter at Medic Science, and that's the, always the easiest way to find me. Scott, thanks for coming on the show. And for myself and co-host Chris Cevallero, Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. You guys catch us on uh, iTunes. Don't forget to rate us. Send us your questions, concerns, comments, and suggestions at the show at ems1.com. Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.